Welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. Guess what? I'm Carolyn Glick. I'm still here. Anyway, uh, we're going to be plowing on again this week and discussing the nuclear negotiations uh, that the Americans are carrying out with Iran, um, what the deal involves, what it doesn't involve, what it means, and um, how we're supposed to look at it in terms of both uh, in in comparison to the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign and also in the in the context of uh, U.S.-Russian relations and the U.S. financial campaign against Russia and how that works with Russia being a major partner and in fact uh, U.S. being depending is dependent on Russia for the Iran nuclear deal that uh, Biden and his people so desperately seek to achieve. Uh, as quickly as possible. And I could think of nobody better to discuss these issues with than with my guest for today's show, Gabriel Noronha, uh, is a young man who we didn't know much about until about two and a half weeks ago when he posted a series of tweets on his Twitter accounts that were accounts that his colleagues uh, in the State Department and that who are in the U.S. delegation uh, under Robert Malley in Vienna, and also I think um, representative uh, members of a European delegation to the talks in Vienna had disclosed to him because they're so concerned about what was happening. So, um, without further ado, I'm uh, Gabriel. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Thanks for having me, Carolyn. I appreciate you, appreciate coming on here. Well, I think I think it, it's really important to talk to you. Um, and before we start anything, let me just uh, give everybody a little bit of your biography. So. I'm just going to read out what you sent me. Uh, Gabriel Neuronha is uh, the executive director of two foreign policy initiatives in Washington. One is sort of a calm strategic communications uh, strategy shop. And the other one is a little bit more audacious and ambitious, which is that he's trying to uh, put together. It's a foreign policy initiative to try to coalesce Republican foreign policy minds to put together a coherent uh, strategy that the party as a whole uh, is going to be able to get behind. So I, I think that that's also uh, a very important work. So we wish you all very good. We wish you very good luck in in, in that endeavor as well. Um, but um, I wanted to talk to you because uh, during the Trump administration, you were a special advisor to the Iran Action Group under Brian Hook. Um, and uh, you left the State Department in 2021. And uh, you remain in contact with the uh, professional State Department staff that remained behind and are on Mali's team in uh, Vienna negotiating the uh, nuclear deal that uh, uh, that the Biden administration is so key to achieve. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the information you received and, and, and about the feelings of uh, your colleagues that are on the U.S. delegation? Sure. So I was I was reached out to um, by multiple members of the U.S. government who are who work on Iran um, because they were so concerned with the degree um, and the nature of the capitulations that were happening um, by Rob Malley in Vienna. Uh, and it's important to note that three members of the negotiating team had resigned in the last few months. Um, two of those were political appointees. These weren't you know conservative dissenters. These were. Um, you know, generally people supportive of the president's policy, but they political just sort of, appointees of of, uh, of President, President Biden. Biden, the President Biden, uh, as well as career officials who resigned 
Um, and that's on top of other uh, career people who moved on from Iran or, or asked to be, to be relocated elsewhere just because they sort of said, this, this whole policy doesn't make any sense. This is a giveaway. This policy is really just a disaster. And, I, and they didn't want to be part of it. So it's uh, interesting, you know, Rich, uh, um, um, before you start telling us about um, your colleagues who reached out to you, I mean, we should have to back up a second and say a couple of weeks before you reported uh, what they were saying to you on Twitter, Richard Nephew, who was um, Blink, uh, Mally's uh, deputy uh, as the head of the deputy head of the U.S. delegation, he quit along with, I think, two other uh, State Department officials on the team. So your colleagues who spoke with you are just a continuation of that. By the way, how big is the U.S. delegation that that Mali leads or the team well, that Mali leads? Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about size of personnel because that gets into sensitive into sort of sensitive areas. But but are we talking uh, about well, dozens? Are we talking about well? I think his, I mean, core, his core negotiating team, I think, is is a fairly small team. But there's a large apparatus in the U.S. government that works on Iran issues that is all supporting this negotiating team. Um, doing, you know, from from all the desk officers, all the, in, you know, there's 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 a large swath of the U.S. government that works on Iran um, because it's such an important national security issue. And they're all sort of they're all subordinate to Rob Malley on this issue. Then he's the head of everybody. Ultimately, the way the U.S. government generally works is that the special representative has he might not have the final say, but he is the leading authoritative voice on the issue. Um, so folks at the Department of Defense answer to the top generals, the, part, the top people at Treasury and NSC report to their leaders. But the special envoy for Iran sets the tone uh, and sets the policy for Iran across the U.S. government and basically is in the lead on all of this. I see. So so Mali, um, so even if they don't work directly for him, he's basically everybody's boss because he's, he's calling the one who's making yeah, plans. He's calling the shots. Ultimately above him, the Secretary of State does. But my understanding is that the Secretary of State is quite deferential um to, to Rob Mali here. So okay, so what what was it? So the people though that were speaking to you, the people who are ostensibly dealing with this issue or are dealing with this issue in the Biden administration ostensibly want to make a deal with, with Iran. I mean, these are not opponents of the JCPOA. These are, like you said, some of them are even political appointees of Biden. So, but I mean, Richard Nephew was certainly for di- diplomacy with the Iranians uh, when he joined the administration, when he joined the U.S. delegation under... Yeah, under I, think, I think generally a lot of people in the U.S. government want a deal with Iran in theory. But the question is very much all about the details and the details are what matter and the details are what caused, um, you know, these these career government officials to come to me and say this, this doesn't make any sense. Um, these details and these concessions are far beyond the scope of the JCPOA. Um, they're giving up even for even more uh, than the JCPOA gave up um, and they're getting less in return. So let's talk about what the concessions that they that they outlined to you involve. Sure. So the big one, uh, and this would happen, is my understanding on sort of day one that the deal is reached and, and finalized, is it's the cessation of the all sanctions under uh, the Supreme Leader's Office executive order. This was an executive order that we, that the Trump administration um, finalized in, I believe, June 2019 in response to the Iranians um, taking out a U.S. drone in the Strait of Hormuz and in, over international waters. 
and really into uh, as a response to their attacks against um, tons of, of maritime vessels in the area, just Iran's general conduct of terrorism. And we were able to sanction some of the regime's top terrorists and top human rights abusers and top torturers under this executive order. Um, people like Ibrahim Raisi, who's involved in the execution of over 5,000 Iranians, uh, people like Ahmad Janadi, who again uh, encouraged and, and took, took part in executing um, hundreds of political protesters, um, and then top terrorists like uh, those who were involved in planning and executing the AMIA bombing in Argentina in 1994. Um, those and, and there's and the Marine whole, barracks, right, in, in, in Beirut. And, and RGC General Degan, who who was uh, instrumental in, in carrying out the the bombing that killed 240 Americans and 58 French soldiers in Beirut in 1983. Um, so these are some of the regime's most reprehensible figures. Um, so those those sanctions are all, would all be lifted in the very early days of the deal, um, likely before the deal is even submitted to Congress, if if that is being submitted at all. Um, but what is th those are bad, and and each of those individuals deserves to be sanctioned. What troubles me perhaps more is the financial sanctions that are being lifted. Um, sanctions would be lifted on Iran's central bank, on Iran's national development fund, uh, and on the economic drivers uh, of terrorism. Uh, the, the, thing, the entities that fund the IRGC, that fund um, basically all the proceeds that go to Hamas and Hezbollah, like the National Iranian Oil Company and National Iranian Tanker Company. These, we know from, from both testimony of Iranian officials themselves, as well as through other methods, that these organizations directly fund terrorism. Um, and that's why they were, they were sanctioned under terrorism authorities uh, by the US government. Those sanctions would be lifted as well. And there's really oh, wait, no- Wait, the Iranian national oil, uh, is that what you call the national oil or national petroleum uh, company? So the United States now is saying that they uh, want, the minute that they conclude the Iran nuclear deal, the, the nuclear deal, uh, that they expect for Iranian oil up to what is it a million barrels a day or something like that to come onto uh, the market uh, to lower uh, oil prices, and uh, so all of the money that goes to Iranian oil would be used to fund terrorism. Yeah, roughly. So my understanding is the deal is actually in several stages. The, oil, the stage that involves the oil sanctions would be one of the last stages of the sanctions relief. This could be a couple of months from now. Um, and it's after some of the early actions by the Iranians and by our government have already proceeded. Then the sanctions relief on the oil comes off. Right now, Iran is exporting about a million air barrels of oil per day. Um, they would probably go back up. It would take some months for the production to resume, uh, but they'd go up to two to two and a half million barrels of oil per day. Um, that's an immense amount of oil revenue that gives uh, the Iranians somewhere in the range of $50 billion of oil revenue per year. Uh, well, that's in current prices, right? I mean, I don't even know if that's in current prices because current prices rise, you know, so quickly every day it could end up being. That was under the old, that was under the old prices. Right. If you compare it from the Trump administration levels of about 300 to 400,000 barrels of oil per day, to going up to 2.5 million barrels at $100 a barrel, you're talking- Yeah, 130, yeah. Yeah, or 130, you're talking far, far more revenue. All right.
So that's a huge amount of money for Hamas. And who else gets uh, funded from the oil company? So we know that Hezbollah traditionally got $700 million a day, right. a, 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 a year. A year. Uh, Hamas got about $100 million. Right. Um, Assad got huge lines of revenue. And Assad also just got oil as, as a driver of, the, of his war engine. Um, the Houthis get, uh, typically get uh, weapons, but they also get some, some money. And then um, the Shia militias in Iraq, like AAH and KH, Kataib Hezbollah, um, they would get a large amount of financial support and military support as well from the Iranians. So, okay, so back to the sanctions uh, withdrawal. So that you, th- you think that that would happen two months into the deal? I mean, it seems to me like Probably. the Americans would be keen to have the sanctions off the oil as quickly as possible, right? Because of the because of the uh, the crisis now in in oil. Yeah, I, I think part of it is a lot of this deal was being negotiated last year, and it's sort of they didn't anticipate this oil spike coming. Um, and as we'll discuss later with Russia, that's thrown a huge wrench into what is now suddenly a different geopolitical interests that that countries are facing now that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has really upended. Uh, the geopolitical situation across the world. Um, but yes, um, normally the U.S. would want oil sanctions lifted now, but now suddenly Russia does not want the oil sanctions lifted, which in my view is one of the reasons they're they're creating an impediment to this deal last minute all of a sudden. All right. So what other, what other sanctions are they talking about removing? So they're also lifting sanctions on um, dozens of sort of the top facilitators of Iran's weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missile program. Um, for example, Gavamin Bank, um, which uh, is involved in financing the IRGC's ballistic missile programs. Um, there's other banks which are involved in funding the Basij, which is Iran's sort of domestic root squad um, that killed 1,500 Iranians a year, uh, two and a half years ago. Um, and they were um, also instrumental in quelling the Green Revolution by by murdering uh, the protesters in 2009-2010. Absolutely. Um, and then there's another 100, I think I believe 100 to 120. But you said that uh, those sanctions are supposed to remain on because the Iranians don't care because the besiege has nothing to do with the international financial. Uh, so sector. the Iranians didn't um, care about the besiege itself as an entity being delisted because there's really no financial transactions that it conducts with the rest of the world. What they care about are the financial mechanisms and the fundraising mechanisms for the besiege that allow it to have the funds to carry out its, its activities. That's the same reason that they wanted the IRGC to be delisted because the IRGC has a huge financial um, interest and mechanisms around the world. And so it was important for them that the IRGC have its sanctions removed so that they can conduct their terror funding. Yeah. So, okay. So if the United States delists the IRGC from the uh, list of foreign terrorist organizations the State Department uh, publishes, what are the implications uh, for the IRGC? What are the implications of being on the list? Just just to get a, a clear sense, because the Trump administration, of course, listed them, and that was a huge move. And what so, did that what did that take away from them? So it allows the United States to take a huge amount of terror um, related sanctions related to the IRGC as a result. Um, and so um, the you know, the way that sanctions work in the U.S. government is if you can prove that you are providing terrorism support, financial or otherwise, that can then make you subject to sanction. 
So, you know, the IRGC's financiers, they're, they're the people that do business with them cannot be subject to terrorism sanctions. That affects both individuals and financial mechanisms and entities. So by delisting the IRGC, what you're doing is you're basically giving a free pass to all the networks and entities and individuals who are helping to fund and carry out and execute terrorism. Now, what the State Department is likely to say is that, oh, we will continue to finance to sanction individual terrorists. But the individuals themselves, it's, it's one thing, but you to actually stop the terrorism and, and actually create consequences, it's really about the networks, it's about the financial mechanisms, um, and it's about really sending a strong signal to countries around the world that say, hey, if you have, if you are doing business with the IRGC, you are liable as well. So it creates accountability, it creates um, an expectation around the world that, hey, if the United States, um, which is typically sort of the leader in identifying in terrorist organizations, says this is a terrorist organization, you're going to think twice about letting those individuals into your country. So, but the question is, like, what kind of entities are you talking about? Are you talking about banks in, you know, Germany? Are you talking about, I mean, who who has been, how how international are the IRGC's financial dealings? Are they, are, are, are they, they are, spanning? They are, they, are they? Yeah, they are quite significant. They, they span, you know, they span across the Middle East. You have uh, entities in, in UAE that have been involved. You have, uh, banks in China uh, and in companies in China and Singapore, uh, in Thailand and Germany. Um, you have some links um, in, in Latin America. Um, so really it's an international, it's both an international business conglomerate and it's an international terrorist conglomerate. Right. And they actually, they, they're very enmeshed into the Iranian economy um, that way as well. All right. So if they're delisted, then all of these players get to go right back to doing uh, to uh, having economic cooperation, banking with them, uh, being their investment advisors, whatever it happens to be laundering money for them uh, without fear of being themselves a, a, a place. Of I think attention. I think that the devil is in the details there as well. Um, so my my sources indicated that, that Mali had offered to delist the IRGC. Um, but my understanding is one of the final sticking points in the deal in, in the negotiations in Vienna is is figuring out the exact mechanisms of how that would happen, what other entities would be delisted and unsanctioned as a result. So not every single detail there is ironed out yet, but I think we're very, very close to that being a possibility and finality. Okay. Uh, do you want? Are there other financial se- uh, sanctions that are going to be removed that we should also discuss before we uh, go on to the nuclear issues? Um, I think the other big one is is the Satad and the Boniads, Mostazafan. Um, these are the Hamene's personal slush funds, which have nearly or perhaps over a hundred million, a hundred billion dollars in, in wealth. Um, that a lot of which was confiscated from Jews, from Baha'is, from other religious and ethnic minorities, um, and those entities would be delisted as well. Uh, which is a huge loss for anti-corruption uh, fights uh, and as well as to put accountability on Hamenei himself. I'm trying to remember there was an article, a very big article that came out like three weeks, three years ago. I should have looked it up before uh, we started our conversation, but it was about how the Obama, I think it's Operation Cassandra, that mm-hmm. the Obama administration stopped this major um uh, I think it was um, Treasury investigation Department investigation of yeah. uh, so so. 
Can you just can you just remind me of what that was about, and uh, and then talk about how this will enable that kind of operation to? So, to, to the best of my recollection, it's been it's been a little time since I yeah. read that as well. But Project Cassandra was a joint Treasury and law enforcement operation against Hezbollah networks in Latin America uh, and their links to the Middle East. Um, it was looking at the financial mechanisms, but also the terror uh, conduct and, and operations that they were looking to do. Um, and they were at the verge of announcing final huge crackdowns on all these networks um, when the JCPOA was originally being negotiated. Uh, and they were told by the White House to stand down, that they were not to carry out their law enforcement functions. They were not to carry out this, you know, uh, this operation, which was both law enforcement and anti-terrorism related because they didn't want to upset Iran. And I think that's a really troubling pattern that we've seen from both the Obama administration and the Biden administration. I agree with you. And, you know, one of the large and I, I'm sorry to uh, uh, to our viewers and our listeners that I, I uh, what I'll try to do is link the uh, political piece so that you can see exactly what it is that we're talking about. I should probably have reread it uh, uh, this afternoon, but uh, be that as it may, it brings up the other uh, party that the Biden administration is keen to get oil shipments from, which is Iran's a Latin American ally, Venezuela, and Venezuela has been intimately involved with a lot of the uh, corruption, you know, the the mutter, money laundering operations. Of course, the European, the uranium mining, um, the the uh, terrorist cells, and a whole bunch of other operations that Iran is carrying out with Venezuela in Latin America and striking distance of the United States. Um, and how I guess that uh, removing a lot of these sanctions against Iran will also uh, redound to the benefit of the Maduro regime in 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 Venezuela in certain ways because they're partners. And it's important to remember that Venezuela is hardly even a state anymore. It is really just a narco syndicate um, run by Maduro, who is a drug kingpin. Um, that's what Venezuela it is. Well. And so the idea that we're lifting sanctions that we're considering lifting sanctions on Venezuela as well as another travesty, but that's for another another conversation, another day. But Venezuela does have very close ties with Iran, which I think it's- They do, and there's too. both terror cooperation, oil cooperation. It's, it's really a, an axis of evil, but an axis of convenience as well. They don't have ideological ties other than uh, hatred and opposition of the West and, and America in particular. Although there are some senior Iranians that are in the Venezuelan government. I mean, you you had, you also had a lot of the, you had the, the Tehran Express that was flying from, uh, I don't know, Tehran to Caracas and through Syria and Beirut on a weekly basis with, with, with various shipments. That was about 15 uh, and 10 years ago. Um, but uh, I mean, thing, it, it, yeah. Anyway, so let's just move on though for a second to the nuclear uh, uh, details of the uh, of the agreement that your your colleagues uh, divulged to you. Um, you know, it's very clear from what you wrote, and really just what we've seen that this deal really is much weaker on the limitations on Iran's nuclear operations and the JCPOA. Uh, but can you can you give us some details specific uh, to what you've learned from your colleagues about where they were in the 15 deal and where they are now in terms of the nuclear limitations? So the the big issue is, frankly, they just haven't changed the, the details from the 2015 accord. Um, most of the restrictions in the JCPOA all sunset, actually all of them all sunset on Iran. Uh, 
Some of them have already done so, like the UN Conventional Arms Embargo, which was codified in, in the UN Resolution 2231. But the nuclear restrictions themselves start expiring, I believe, just in 2024 on Iranian uh, centrifuges, on both the sophistication and the quantity of Iran's, Iranian centrifuges. Um, by 2031, those restrictions all expire. Iran will have no limitation on the sophistication, the quantity, the quality, um, and they will have no limitations on both the enrichment level of uranium and the quantity. So they could, in theory, have as much enriched uranium for 100 nuclear weapons if they wanted to. Now, it's important, I always try to make the distinction, there's a difference between a nuclear enrichment breakout period, which is the time to get enough enriched material for a weapon, and the weaponization timeline basically the ability to actually put a nuclear device together that can explode and then separately to pair it with a ballistic missile for re-entry. Those are very different timelines. Um, and I always caution that the, I think in my, in my personal view, they're equally important timelines and there's been a huge emphasis by this administration to focus solely on the enrichment timeline. Um, and that's the exact same thing that the Iranians want to focus on because it's entirely used to extort the West. In my view, that is the principal um, function of Iran's nuclear program for the last few years is generate very uh, alarming headlines to try to extort the West into giving it sanctions relief, which is its primary goal. Which is really uh, so funny because, you know, I saw that Wendy Sherman, the deputy secretary of state, God only knows how she keeps getting promoted. I mean, talking about failing up. But I mean, she was on all these Fox News shows uh, today and, and we're we're taping on Monday and on Fox News Sunday, and she's saying, "Oh, we you know it would be terrible if Iran gets the nuke, and that's why we need to have this deal." And it was her brilliant plan in 1994 that gave us the agreed framework with the with the North Koreans, and the the agreed framework of the North Koreans gave them sanctions relief for temporary abrogation or, or temporary. Uh, cessation of their of their uh, of the use of their Yangbyon uh, plutonium uh, reactor and you know they just unsealed it and went back to uh, developing plutonium based nuclear weapons and un until you know when was it? in 2006 they they conducted their first uh, nuclear test and so she, and instead of being thrown out of Dodge and never listened to her again, you know, she she keeps getting promoted. She was she was a senior person. Uh, she was leading the talks for Obama. And now she's deputy secretary of state and she's still up to her old tricks. And they've always failed. And she continues to do them, which really comes to the question of what are these people's intentions? I mean, are they is she stupid? Or, or is she, or is she, you know, she's fine with North Korea being a nuclear armed state. She's fine with Iran being a nuclear armed state. I mean, it, how do you read? I, that? I, I think, I think, you know, I've won your description. I think is spot on. I was going to say very similar words myself. I, uh, look, I, I, I try not to impugn the personal motives of our leaders because I don't know what's in, going through their heads. And I try to generally think the best of people. But what the word I would describe for both Ms. Sherman and, and Mr. Malley is uh, the height of naivety. Um, the, the idea- the, the height of what? Of naivety, naivety. Na um, naivete, naivete. Naivete. Um, that their, and their principal mistake is thinking that our enemies think the same way that we do. Um, and that there are, our enemies can, can rely on good faith and can be trusted and have anything other than sort of maniacal ambitions. Um, and so I think the other mistake that 
certainly Ms. Sherman made was this obsession with buying us a little bit more time. And which is really the better way word for that is just kicking the can down the road. Look, individuals, for an individual, certainly for myself, nine years or 10 years is a long time. In the life of a nation, in the life of, and especially in the life of a regime, which has patience, nine years to get a nuclear weapon is just the blink of an eye. Um, they are quite content to wait nine years to get a nuclear weapon if that means that they can do so without the threat of sanctions. And if they have economic cover within those nine years to acquire an S-400 or an S-500 anti-aircraft system from Russia so that they could deter a potential Israeli or U.S. attack on their nuclear facilities. Um, and so I think it's very, um, it's a bad bargain to seek a little bit more time of stability and in that time to empower and enrich uh, a country like Iran. I you know, I, I think you, I, I don't know. I don't know Wendy Sherman. I think that she's stupid as, you know, she's dumber than a box of nails as an old friend of mine who's a carpenter used to say, but I mean, she, she's really stupid. I don't actually think that Robert Malley is, I think that he's malicious. I think, you know, I, I had Michael Duran on last week and, and he and Tony Bedron wrote a very important article called the realignment that was published in tablet magazine a few months ago. And I think that Robert Malley and Jake Sullivan uh, want to realign U.S. Uh, Middle East policy away from Israel. They want to downgrade Israel. They want to downgrade the Saudis in the UAE, and they want to empower Iran because they that's what they think is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do politically from a domestic perspective with prog progressives who who are very you know anti-Israel and anti-Saudi. Um, and it's the right thing to do uh, from their uh, strategic perspective because they think that the United States is a force for ill in the world and that and so are its allies and that the way to make things stable or whatever or better is to empower America's enemies against America's allies and for the United States to try to you know get out of town that is that that's a view that I believe that is in my view uh, the most faithful and accurate description of the core dot driving dynamics of the people in office today especially Mali uh, Blinken and, and Sherman and to a lesser degree, Jake Sullivan. Well, I don't know. Jake Sullivan, I think he has a Boy Scout look on his face, but I don't, I, when you look at his involvement in uh, the Russiagate garbage, I think that it's hiding something else, but it doesn't really matter. You're right. It, their intentions are much less important than what they're actually doing. And so just to go back to the nuclear thing, I think you're right. You know, if if you have, if you have limitations on, the amount that Iran can enrich, uh, but they end in 18 or 24 months, then who really cares? And anyway, I mean, I think there's another problem, which is the inspection regime. I mean, the inspection regime in, in the 2015 deal was a joke because Iran could say that any, any installation they wanted to was a military installation and therefore UN inspectors were barred from entering into them. So the toughest inspection regime we've ever seen, as John Kerry said, was not tough at all. It was it was it was ridiculous. Was they get to say, oh no, you know, this uh, lady's bar, you know, this lady's uh, beauty shop is is a military installation. You can't come in, and and see what we're hiding in our blow dryers. I mean, I mean, it was all just it was a joke that they could say anything that they wanted to was a military installation. And now, and I think I, it's, oh, I think it's to build off of what you're saying. I think it's important for for viewers to remember that the IEA themselves said that the Iranians refused to provide them access to two nuclear sites in Iran 
for over six months with zero accountability for what they were hiding within these sites with zero answers for why they had refused to provide access. That is such a far cry from this 24 hours anytime anywhere inspection, which we were promised in the early days of their on negotiations. You know, this administration will continually use the slogans like this, the greatest and strictest non-proliferation deal ever. Those are ridiculous slogans. It's, it's a- yeah, Unless you compare it with the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, for instance, of which uh, Iran is a signatory so that, you know, their entire nuclear operation, their entire nuclear program uh, places them in material breach of their signature on the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. So if you were going to go, you know, back to the world without a, without a deal, then Iran should be required to abide by the limitations of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, which mean that they have to throw out their entire nuclear weapons program, which is what their program is. So, I mean, it's all a joke. It's all a, let's just close our eyes and say, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, and it'll all be fine. You know? Exactly. But so if, if you look at these, the uh, limitations, so, I mean, it, it, are there explicit uh, details regarding the inspections regime that are now being negotiated in Vienna that that are different or that you know about that you can that you can explain to us what's going to be happening with that. So, so I'm not. So I, I believe a lot of the details of the IEA are actually still being negotiated as part of sort of the final agreement. The uh, the Europeans wanted a final dis- resolution to the outstanding IEA issues. So those um, two sites that the Iranians wouldn't let the uh, the UN inspectors go into is that what they're talking about? Those, or what, are, what are those, the are, part, those are part of them. There's this, there's discovery of uranium metal, um, which is a part of the weaponization process at, at sites. Um, there's a few other undisclosed issues which may have changed in the last couple of years from when I was at the State Department. Um, and so, so those issues are, are still to be resolved. There's issue of camera access and camera memory storage at, at these sites. Um, there's issues of harassment of IEA staff. All these things still need to be resolved. Uh, what I believe is the case is that the IEA Director General Rafael Grossi was basically forced and strong-armed into making a half-hearted agreement with Iran uh, to appease negotiators who wanted this to no longer be an impediment. Um, they wanted to get on the deal. Um, and and uh, Grossi sort of grud- grudgingly complied with that. Um, the other information which I've, I've heard, I haven't had verified yet because it's again still in negotiation, is this idea of, an, of what is called an inherent guarantee. And what that means is Iran wants some form of assurance the United States will, know, will not pull out of an agreement um, in one year's time or three years time with Republicans coming into Congress and the executive branch. Um, and so what they're looking for is a mechanism by which they can keep both centrifuges and amounts of highly enriched uranium in country so that if the U.S. backs out of a deal, again, they can return the nuclear program exactly to where it is today. But what I don't understand about that, I saw your report on that. And the thing that I didn't understand about that is that the JCPOA is supposed to end a most significant nuclear uh, uh, limitations on Iran um, in 2025. So if you assume or if you take the the Iranians' worst-case scenario, which would be that the Republicans return to the White House and have control of both houses of of the Congress, they still can't, I mean, it's not like they could get, it wouldn't matter if the United States wanted to vacate the the New Deal because it would be over. 
So, yeah. so I don't, I, I couldn't quite understand. All they want, well, they, what they want is to be able to, so there are certain restrictions which end in, in 2025, certain restrictions end in 2027, others in 29, and then by 2031, all the meaningful restrictions are gone. Um, the, the, the inherent guarantees, if the US pulled out in 2030 or 2031, it would have no effect. What it is basically a bridge for is 2025 to 2029. Um, it allows those years to function for a run like 2023, like 2031, if the US withdrew. Um, and so all it does is it basically it's a little bit more insurance policy if the Republican, if the Republican president comes in. But if office. the uranium, if the enriched uranium remains in Iran, then what have you done? I mean, if if the centrifuges are in Iran. And what it's it's exactly the North Korean deal then, right? Because they it just is. had to put seals on the Yongbyon uh, facility, which they then unsealed when they were done with it, right? So and this, and this is you know if you want to know why you know why are career staffers leaving the the, the negotiating team, why are political appointees resigning? It's because directly because of concessions like this that simply don't make sense. There's no there's no logic to them. There's no benefit to the United States. It's pure Iranian victories. Which is why you had the Russian ambassador Mikhail Olyanov say that if Russia got far, far more than it than I expected, than others expected out of this deal. This is again, it's Iranians kept asking and asking and asking for more things, and the U.S. just kept giving them because they were so afraid that the Iranians would walk away from the negotiating table. So the United States essentially under Mali, it has absolutely no bottom uh, line. It, it has no red line. It has no bottom red line. You know, I mean, it has no lines that it's not willing to cross, which is why I find it sort of odd that they're jostling with the IEA, IEA about uh, inspections because, I mean, it's say that Iran says, fine, you know, we'll let you, we'll get, and in fact, there was a, there was a report that said that Iran you know, that they would they would conclude the deal now and Iran would get their 90 billion dollars out, you know, right out of the off the, the starting block. But um, that uh, they would get the IAEA its information by May. Right. So they're already blowing them off. And and obviously the Biden administration isn't going to go back and say, oh, wait, if they're not giving us the information, then it's all that, you know, we want our money back. You know, we're, we're not going to we're not going to take this anymore. Uh, all of the financial restrictions that we're on are, are that have just been removed are going to be reinstated. So, I mean, it's all kind of, I, I mean, who's the crowd that you think Mali is playing towards when he says, okay, yeah, we have to find out what's going to happen with EIAEA before we go forward. Honestly, we're at the point now, and this is a sad point, where the European negotiators are, are taking a stronger line than the American negotiators are. You saw this in 2015, you had Gerald Rowe, who's, you know, one of the most pro-Iran diplomats out there, still saying this deal that the Americans are doing is giving far too many concessions. And when you have something like that happening, that's when that's a signal. Yeah, the, the French were the the French were much more hardcore. I mean, Israel, the Netanyahu was working with with the French, who was uh, the president was at Sarkozy then? I believe it was, yeah, Nicolas Sarkozy at the time. Uh, yeah, so um, I mean, Israel was working with the French against against the Americans during the Obama. So, so to answer your question, what constituency is Mali even trying to appease right now? It's the it's, Europeans. It's very, very, very far left. 
in the U.S. Mali was when Mali's name was first floated. Uh, no, his- I don't. No, no, no. I don't mean who he's trying. I'm saying if he play is if he's pretending to play tough guy, you know, yeah. like backing the IAEA uh, when they said they they have to iron out you know the details of their inspections when it's fairly clear that nobody's going to hold Iran to their word on the inspections after this deal is concluded. Who is he playing to? Who is he trying to play hard, hard the, the tough guy with? It's mostly theater. And look, the Iranians know but that the theater is towards whom? It's it's towards the American public. It's toward it's who's who is his target audience when he pretends to be a tough guy? I think it's other bureaucrats within the US government. I think it's the Europeans. Um, and I think it is a sort of a, a show for a, a attempted show at the Iranians, but the Iranians aren't intimidated and aren't really impressed by this. So it's basically the bare minimum necessary to satisfy bureaucrats within the U.S. system to say that he is at least making some show of trying to uphold U.S. national non-proliferation goals. Okay, um, now now go back to what you were saying before that you know about uh, Mali and the progressives. Well, Mali was one of the most progressive choices, um, and he's one of the most progressive political appointees in the whole U.S. government. Certainly, he's the most progressive in the foreign policy establishment. Um, and I don't know, he's got some stiff competition, but okay, you know. Um, but he he really is fringe. I mean, he was a he was fired from President Obama's campaign in 2008 for his meetings with Hamas. Um, that's that says a lot. Uh, I'm not to be clear, I'm not arguing that he is a member of Hamas or that he has provided material support. Although, if they provide 90 billion dollars to Iran, it will effectively be providing material support to Hamas um, and Hezbollah. Um, but you know, I think you actually made a really great point. If if they go back in this deal, they will have spent a year doing so. They will call it a, some form of crowning achievement. And if Iran then starts cheating tomorrow, I guarantee you that the United States will do nothing about it. We saw this for years with how the Russians cheated on the INF treaty. We saw this for years with the Chinese cheating on things. And we know the Iranians were were violating um, their non-proliferation requirements by having an archive of nuclear material um, still locked up away in Tehran. So we know that they've done that, but this administration has this serial um, obsession with not confronting um, our enemies with violations of treaties, and they won't ever get out of them because there's this almost religious fanaticism with which they hold international agreements, and they believe that they're sacred um, because they personally were involved in negotiating them, and so yeah, they- I don't have a problem with that. I mean, if uh, I mean, I think you know, you can you, you there are there are arguments to be made on uh, that are rational, but an an international agreement that's being materially breached by one party is not an agreement. I mean, exactly. I mean, that's the problem is that it's not that an agreement is is sacrosanct. It's that the obligations that the parties to the agreements, uh, you know, uh, uh, take on. That's what's supposed to be maintained. That's what's supposed to be respected, not, not an agreement per se. It's the obligations. And if they're not carrying out the obligations, I mean, this just redounds to the basic irrationality of the policy, right? Because if you're saying, well, we can't, we need to protect the agreement when it's being undone by one side, then you're living in a fantasy. You know, your fantasy. concepts are fantasy. Which I think is exactly where the Europeans have lived for the last few years, where every month or so, every two months, they put out a statement saying they are concerned or condemn some Iranian nuclear development. 
and they have yet to put on a single consequence for these Iranian nuclear developments. No, they scuttled them. And that's where I wanted to go next, actually. Yeah. So why don't we just shift for a second to the maximum pressure campaign? Because, you know, it, it's true that, I, I mean, there are indications of, of uh, discomfiture among the Europeans at Mali's radicalism, which is, like you said, incredibly ironic and, and silly, but it's, um, or, uh, you know, alarming, not silly, um, but it's, it, it it's um uh par for the course you know or or the reason why it's ironic is because of the way that they treated the trump administration's iran policies and also iranian breaches of the of the jcpoa i mean that they that they refused to implement the snapback sanctions when it was obvious that the iranians were in fact in breach of the deal and that the snapback sanctions w- were supposed to be required and um so they were shielding Iran from the Trump administration and, and working with Kerry and Mali and others uh, from the Obama administration during the Trump presidency to undermine and, and subvert U.S. US uh, diplomacy and, and uh, policy towards, towards Iran. So can we just talk a little bit about what did, what, what did the maximum pressure campaign that you were involved in um, what did it set out to accomplish, and how was it doing uh, when when the when when President Trump left office in January? So the maximum pressure campaign had had two goals. The first goal was to pressure Iran into coming back to the negotiating table, ostensibly to negotiate a actual longer and stronger deal that met uh, that would constrain Iran's nuclear program more, uh, curtailed support for terrorism and regional destabilization curtail its ballistic missile program and then um, resolve some hostage issues. Um, that was one goal, um, which didn't work. And I'll explain for various reasons why I think that was the case. But the second goal, which was complementary and was sort of an equally good outcome, was simply to deprive the regime of revenue with which to carry out all of its nefarious foreign policy agenda. So it's nuclear program, it's terrorism uh, and everything else. On the second count, it was extraordinarily successful. We res- we deprived the regime of about two between depending on your accounting, um, about two hundred billion dollars in revenue that it otherwise could have used to spend on terrorism, on its armed forces, on all those elements of national strength. By the way, uh, how much money did they get from sanctions relief from the JCPOA until until the maximum uh, pressure campaign was implemented? When the JCPOA itself was signed, they got $56 billion in direct sanctions relief, so frozen assets that were unfrozen. Um, and then they were able to um, sell as much oil as they wanted, up to about 2.6 million barrels of oil per day um, until 2018 when, when sanctions resumed. Um, so if you combine that, probably about around also about $200 billion, uh, give or take, that they were able to bring in. And then we took away over the course of our maximum pressure campaign, $200 billion. Okay. Um, the results to this- But that were, was in lost revenue, right? That, that wasn't- in both, mm-hmm. in both lost revenue and in assets that were frozen that they were unable to okay. access. Okay. Uh, combination of the two. So Iran's military spending decreased by 28% in one year, 21% another year. Um, now that does massive things when you are unable to both procure new military equipment, pay salaries, Hamas was on austerity, Hezbollah had to lay off fighters left and right. Uh, the Houthis couldn't get nearly as many weapons. Um, and so you saw 
a what we were at the beginning of in 2019 and then 2020 was a radical transformation of the Middle East because the terror proxies were starving. Basically, they just wouldn't have the money, and we were seeing Iran's economy shrink by six, seven percent um, for two years in a row, um, and so we were seeing basically the stranglehold uh, take place of Iran's economy. Then COVID came in, made it even worse. Um, but we didn't get a deal. And here's why. Because Khamenei views a deal as a capitulation to the West and as the end to the Iranian regime and everything it stands for. Because the Iranian regime stands for conflict with West and conflict with Israel. That is the core nature of the regime. And so for them to sign that away is almost akin to the United States saying we will get rid of our constitution. So wait, um, you guys thought there was an actual thought that if that the maximum pressure campaign would bring Iran to the negotiating table? There was. There was. I think we we saw signs at first that they were considering it. Are you talking about how, Brian Hook and and yes. and and Mike Pompeo and Hook Pompeo even Bolton I think at times we thought that there was a good chance that we could actually get Iran to negotiate. Now, within that, we believed that Iran was not willing to negotiate a deal that was going to meet any of, we know, so we had 12 requirements. We sometimes thought that Iran would be willing to give up two or three. Um, we thought that somewhere, you know, maybe seven to 10 would have been sufficient for us to say we'll reach this deal. We didn't expect them to say yes to all 12, but that's a negotiating give and take. Um, but I think in Iran's calculus and certainly in Khamenei's mind, it was actually when we imposed full oil sanctions on Iran that Khamenei turned and he said, they're not trying to negotiate. They're trying to destroy our regime. And they're doing it by strangling the economy, which is the beginning of destroying the regime. And is so that why you said, didn't, is that why there was so much hesitation to putting those uh, sanctions on the oil? And actually, no. The, the, there was a lot of hesitation. Or, or removing, there were sanctions waivers that kept getting renewed and um, and then they finally uh, were not renewed. And that this was is, one of the things that the Biden yeah. administration renewed, right? This is actually, uh, they have not renewed those sanctions waivers yet. There was, so there was, there were three things. There was the foreign, the listing the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization. A lot of people thought that that was going to trigger the Iranians into conflict with us. The Iranians cared about it, they yelled about it, but it wasn't part of their military strategy. When we put those sanctions on Iran's, full sanctions on Iran's nuclear pro, uh, Iran, uh, oil program and oil exports, that changed Iran. And I think, you know, from my time there, that is perhaps the only time we failed to anticipate Iran's reaction properly. I don't think we properly understood how escalatory Iran viewed those oil sanctions. Our, our, when we went, went into those, those oil sanctions, we were looking primarily for economic reasons. The only hesitation we had was we were afraid what it was going to do to the, the global oil price. We didn't think that it was going to cause Iran to set off and blow up ships across the Middle East and, and sort of go into this campaign of terror. So did you guys think that it was, in, in retrospect, that was a mistake? Um, my view of it is we probably should have gone a little slower and eased into it, is probably my answer now. 
that we went from, we took around from 1.1 million barrels of oil per day exports. We took that down all the way to zero overnight, basically. And my view now today is that we probably should have allowed Iran to export, you know, a few hundred thousand barrels of oil, which is what they ended up doing anyways. What, what ended up happening was China ended up exporting, a bunch of countries sort of said, hey, we can't, we can't do this. We're still going to export and import Iranian oil anyways. And I think, and this goes a lot, this is why I'm very hesitant on doing full oil and energy sanctions on Russia today is based on my experience with these oil sanctions on Iran on understanding just how difficult it was to take that much oil off the market and to try to enforce those global economic sanctions around the world. It's a lot of work. It is one of the most difficult things the U.S. government has ever endeavored to do in sort of an economic sanctions regime. So one of the one of the uh, impacts of the shrinkage of the Iranian economy during the period of the ma maximum sanctions, uh, maximum pressure uh, campaign of the Trump administration was that you had increasing you had millions of Iranians all over the country who were going out in the street and calling for the toppling of the regime. Um, mm -hmm. When you guys were looking at this in Washington, I know that Secretary Pompeo uh, did speak supportively, supportively of the Iranians who were opposing the regime, but you didn't see this as an opportunity to bring down the regime. Regime change was never a goal of President Trump's. President Trump actually was rather explicit uh, on a couple of occasions that he did not seek regime change in Iran. And I think that was very much colored by his experience of regime change in you know Iraq, uh, as well as what we saw in the Arab Spring, that when you ask for something, you have to be very prepared for the, the full consequences of what that was. And so President Trump didn't support regime change. Now, I think one of the contradictions, there, there's a couple of contradictions I'll, I'll freely admit. I think um, one contradiction we had was a policy that sought regime change in everything except its rhetoric. We never called for regime change. But I think if you understand the Iranian perspective, they thought that we were seeking regime change and they saw our policies as being a policy of regime change in everything except saying we wanted regime change. We supported the people's, what we've said is we always supported the Iranian people's goals and aspirations for a democratic Iran. We want the Iranian people to choose their destiny and choose their future leaders. It's not up to the United States. Um, but we supported the Iranians taking to the streets and calling for a government that actually cared about their interests and didn't care primarily about supporting and fomenting terrorism around the world. Look, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I, I, I just... It's hard for me to get my, I know that this was President Trump's idea that there, he was going to get a better deal with the Iranians. Do you think that if he had had a second term that the Iranians would have come to the table and made a deal with uh, President Trump? Um, I believe so. The only, the, the, the wild card is Hamene himself. I think Hamene dug in, um, especially towards the end of 2019, and then especially after we took out Qasem Soleimani. After we took out Qasem Soleimani, for him it was he would rather go down dying with the regime than capitulate to the West. So the subversion of the Democrats, the, the Democrats were meeting with Jawad Zarif and with other Iranian 
uh, Iranian officials in European capitals and in other places and telling them that they should just wait. They have to wait out the Trump administration because the Dems would come back and they would reinstate the JCPOA. Um, the Democratic Party in 2018, after uh, President Trump announced that he was leaving the JCPOA, they passed a resolution you know, uh, committing themselves to returning and restoring the JCPOA when they uh, came back into office. Um, what did you guys feel that there that those positions, that those actions by the likes of John Kerry uh, were having any impact on the on on the um, on U.S. relations with Iran, on the success of the maximum pressure campaign? What it told et cetera, et cetera. Iran, yeah, what it told the Iranians was that they could wait until 20, the end of 2020 and see if this could change. And did that um, impact their? Did do you think that 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 the Iranians bought it? That they that they uh, they thought that that was a good idea? I think so. I think um, now I don't want to say every single Iran. I think if you look at your the regime, I'm talking about the regime. I think if you look at you know I've always said the regime is not monolithic. You have certain characters like Zarif who said, "Let's wait this out. Let's wait until Democrats are back in office and we can wait this out." I think you have other officials who would have said, well, and this is what Khamenei has said himself publicly on many occasions, is I don't care if it's a Democrat, I don't care if it's a Republican, you can't trust them either way, and we're going to act the exact same way. Um, I So I believe that, but I don't think it helped. It, it only certainly hurt what we were trying to do, or hurt um, in the perception that the Iranians said, we have an out, all we have to do is wait Trump out. If you had had the Democrats and said, instead say, we will continue the exact same policy, I think you would have seen the, the Iranians say, okay, we've got to reach some form of accommodation with the West. We cannot continue down this road. I see. Um, what about uh, military operations? I mean, there was the uh, hit on Soleimani. Um, do you know what precipitated that? I mean, was it, uh, was there, or, or, and the after effects of that, how, how it was viewed in the immediate after Math of uh, of his of his death. Can you give us well, a little bit of yeah. sense so to what, the, the decision making there? So what we saw starting the summer of 2019 and then escalating, especially in the fall, was the Iranians taking more and more drastic measures against the United States. Started with attacking our drone, but then it started with rocket attacks against bases, and it kept escalating further and further, um, and. It really culminated when the uh, Iranian-backed militias attacked the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad on mm -hmm. uh, December, I believe, 29th. Um, that was pretty bad. And we there were indications that the Iranians were looking to do what they had done to the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in 1979, that they were looking to take um, hundreds, perhaps, of Americans hostage, perhaps kill um, many of them. Um, and that led to a discussion of we have to stop this Iranian mentality. Um, and we knew that Qasem Soleimani was going around the Middle East, and we knew that he was planning devastating attacks against U.S. interests, which would have resulted in the deaths of, uh, I think Secretary Pompeo said, could have been resulted in the deaths of hundreds of American civilians and service members. Um, and so President Trump made the decision that we were going to change the calculus. And the way we changed the calculus was we showed Iran, if you want to play this game, we can play this game far harder than you can. 
um, and we are willing to do far more uh, than you are willing to go. And if you want to continue this into a war, we'll fight that war and we'll win it. Um, and so that's what resulted in Suleimani being taken out. The Iranians responded um, in half measure um, because they knew that they could not win a war of escalation. Um, in military terms, this is called escalate to de-escalate, um, that we knew that we could escalate further than the Iranians could, and that would de-escalate the chain of tensions, which is exactly what happened. The Iranians ultimately backed down. Um, I think the Iranians um, realized they did more than they could. Um, they still seek to revenge Soleimani. Um, they are still trying to assassinate U.S. officials current and former US government officials on US soil. So they don't view this book as an entirely closed. You know, I, I'm wondering about that. I mean, I know that obviously you're right and, and I wrote about it as well in uh, Israel AM last week, but um, the, the thing that I'm wondering about there as well is, is the absence of, of US deterrence, right? I mean, that it, it came out in the Washington Examiner last week that uh, John Bolton is now under Secret Service protection and that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps officers who are behind the plot to assassinate Bolton in, in, in Washington, D.C. Um, are known, their identities are known, and that the uh, administration has chosen not to indict them, not to file open indictments against them because they don't want to anger the Iranians uh, during the nuclear talks in Vienna. Um, and, you know, this is, I think I wrote on my Twitter feed uh, earlier today that I think that this is the fourth act of war that R Iran has carried out against the United States in the last several weeks. There was the attack on U.S. forces in Tomph in Syria, the attack on U.S. forces in, in the UAE, uh, the assassination attempts or plots against Bolton and, and Pompeo, both of them being protected now as, uh, by the Secret Service. And then you have the attack uh, in herbal Iraq on uh, uh, sun, between Sunday and Monday of this week, and the and and the response with Biden administration. Oh well, we don't think that it was against us. We we think it was against uh, Israel. And anyway, uh, you know, it never really happened, and we don't really care. And, and what's really most important is to you know give them a nuclear deal and and then sanctions restrictions on them. So you have this Biden administration that is. Uh, just you know, lying down and and taking it from the Iranians. Uh, why shouldn't the? I mean, I, if the U.S. were more serious, you think that the the Iranian threats against former uh, senior U.S. officials would be so serious? I, I think they. I think if we had messaged them a clear and articulate consequence for what uh, the death of a U.S. official would result, I think you would see the Iranians back down. If we said. Look, if you assassinate these people, we will take out um, every single IRGC general. Um, we will respond fivefold fashion. Um, we will dismantle, you know, every everything that you have built. Um, I think they would say, okay, that's not worth it. Um, and that's the decision calculus that you have to make. That's why we took out Suleimani. That's escalating to de-escalate. That's escalating to what's de -escalate. Gonna happen. Saying that we can look, you might be able to take out one of our guys, but we can take out all of yours, and we're willing to do it. And that okay. message needs to be sent. And I don't believe it's been sent. All right, I want to I want to get to Russia at the end of our discussion, but before we do, I want to talk to you a second about the uranium enrichment and the JCPOA that enabled. Iran to uh, develop advanced centrifuges under the aegis of the deal. Um, you know, the, the Israeli government 
and um, Democrats and the the Biden administration um, all fault the uh, Trump uh, administration. They say, see, look, you know, because you left the deal or they fault the the Netanyahu government because they said because you you were working so hard and lobbied so hard for for Trump to leave the JCPOA. So both sides are being attacked. Um, Iran began uh, uh, doing the enrichment uh, in the advanced centrifuges to 60%. And what my friend and colleague, David Wormser, explains about this, and I'd like to get your view of it, is that, well, you know, that's not true because the Iranians always agreed to things that place limits on what they could do at that moment. Going back to the Bush administration when he was negotiation, when he was involved in the negotiations with the Iranians on on various things, so that when 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 they got to, uh, they had the ability to enrich to three point six seven, and they said, okay, you can take some of our stockpiles, but in exchange, we're going to develop. Uh, the means to enrich the 60% uh, purity of our, our uranium. So that they they developed these, these, um, these advanced centrifuges and they started using them as soon as they were ready to 60%. And that was when they started doing it, irregardless of what they had agreed to in the JCPOA. And I think that that point is very key and the question whether you guys saw it as such as well, or whether you blamed yourself when the Iranians pulled out the advanced centrifuges and began um, and began enriching. I mean, how did you view that? Did you think that that was a fault of your policies? Um, I don't. Well, fault is a word I don't usually use. Uh, I would say it was a natural response from Iran. I'm frankly, I'm surprised that Iran took a year to enrich at all after we withdrew from the deal. I, I would have imagined Iran would have wanted to enrich sooner. Well, probably um, they didn't have the, I mean, I think that the, the Wormser argument is that they didn't have the means to do so because the, the enriched went at the moment that they had the centrifuges that were advanced and capable of, you know, enriching uranium at 10 times the pace and, and at 20 times the enrichment levels, that's when they went and used them. So yeah, I probably disagree slightly um, with his analysis. My take on it is one, Iran thought that the consequences of the US withdrawing from the deal wouldn't be significant. They thought that um, they wouldn't be able to take much Iranian oil off the market. They thought that uh, the, the Europeans would develop this instex method to bypass US sanctions, which didn't work. Um, and they thought that, that Trump wasn't really serious about a lot of this, that a lot of it was just rhetoric. That's why I don't think they enriched much the first year. They, what they wanted to do and what they did is they, they did this where they said every 60 days, we will take a further small incremental step of nuclear enrichment. So at first it was, they moved it to 4.5% enrichment. Then it was 5%, then it was 10%. And you don't think that they would have done any of this if the United States had remained in the nuclear deal? No. Because my view is Iranians, the Iranians understand that the JCPOA is a sweetheart deal for them. It's a deal where the time is all on their side. They get to escalate all their nuclear enrichment timelines over time to their benefit. And so all they have to do is wait out the U.S. um, and over time to take these actions. You know, they didn't take the 60 percent. They didn't start enriching the 60 percent until um, Biden took office. In January 2021 is when they first started enriching at six percent, uh, sixty percent. So what does that tell you? 
that tells me that they wanted to use each act of enrichment as pressure for diplomacy, um, specifically pressure, sorry, I'm about to sneeze again, um, pressure for um, the Europeans to place pressure on us, pressure for the media and Democrats to sort of raise the alarm about it. Again, the, both the CIA and the, Iran, the Israeli intelligence services have indicated that Iran has not taken weaponization acts to to weaponize their nuclear program. What that tells me is they are not seeking right now a nuclear weapon. They are seeking nuclear leverage, not nuclear weapon today. Um, otherwise, they'd be taking weaponization. They'd be embarking on steps of weaponizing their nuclear their nuclear program. The reason they haven't done so is because they rightly fear the military consequences from the U.S. and more importantly from Israel. But I, I don't I mean, I, I have to admit that I disagree with you on your uh, on your assessment. And, and the reason that I disagree with you on your assessment is because I think that the fact that they began enriching to 60 percent when Biden came in was a statement of contempt for Biden. And it wasn't. And, and I also think that um, it's very odd, given the timeline of the enrichment, that anybody would cast aspersions at uh, the maximum pressure campaign and claim that it was responsible. Because again, I mean, it's a question of seriousness of purpose. And, you know, the, the Iranians clearly have, have Biden's number, have Mali's number, and they, and they don't think that they have anything to fear. So they might as well go ahead and do it. So the, the one, I, I think you, I think I don't disagree with your analysis. I think for me, the, the leading indicators are more timing on their end. One, one thing that I, I think a lot about is that the difference between 20% enrichment and 60% enrichment is really not that much. By the time you've enriched to 20% uranium purity, you've done, I believe, 93 to 95% of the work to get to weapons grade. Going from 20% to 60% is only doing about 2 to 3% more work mm. towards that 100%. Um, because once it's once you've removed um, 20, once you've removed, going from 3.67% to 20% is removing a huge amount of the impure material. Uh, going the rest of the way is a lot easier. Um, so I don't, I don't see 60% as a particularly um, I, I saw the move to 20% is a lot more escalatory um, than I saw the move to say the move to 60% is indeed further escalatory from 20%, but it's, it's a different degree. So, you know, I, I guess, I guess the, uh, but it, it sounds, it sounds scary, right? 60%. It, percent, it sounds that, very scary. And that is precisely what they wanted to achieve. They wanted a very scary uh, sounding headline, which well, they got. And, but I, I don't, I mean, you, all right, let, let, let's just leave this for a second. I want to go to Russia because we don't have a lot more time and I and I do yeah. want to and I do want to hit this as well. So, uh, you know, Russia, uh, you you wrote in your tweet that Ulyanov is essentially running the negotiations. Can you can you give a little bit of uh, background and what you mean by that? So, first of all, you have the, the U.S. And, and the Iranians aren't in the same room together. They're being right. they have messages varied. From both the E3, because the, the Iranians refused to sit in a room with the Americans. Correct, um, and so the Iran, the Russians have for a long time been 
Iran's political guardians. Although uh, I have to say there was a report by the former Israeli national security uh, advisor, uh, Yaakov Amidor, who said that his sources claim that uh, Mali is uh, is frequently um, meeting with uh, with the head of the Iranian delegation and uh, just the two of them in, in rooms and that they are negotiating directly. So I would say that I, I did hear that report. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, frankly, I'm, I, that, that, would, that, that doesn't surprise me. Um, I don't know it firsthand, but that I wouldn't be surprised by that. At um, any rate, Ulyanov. At any rate, the, Iran, the, the Russians have long been sort of Iran's political patrons, and they're there to represent Iran's interests within the non-Iran negotiating meeting. So yes, the e will ferry messages, but the Russians are there to provide you know, the power and the convincing and being the, the sort of the, the bad cop um, for the negotiations and carrying Iran's water here in the negotiations. That has been true until the very end when Russia's invasion of Ukraine has completely changed the negotiating calculus and, and incentive structure for the parties here at the agreement. Um, now it's a little bit more antagonistic because Russia's interests are somewhat in conflict with Iran's interests. Um, but Uly I mean, from even if you look at the public side, um, Ulyanov was the only one posting pictures and readouts of most of the negotiations. He's been self-advertising as the public face of these negotiations the whole time. Well, I mean, um, you can't have a deal without Russia. So that, you know, he he does have an awfully strong negotiating uh, position. I mean, the idea that the United States is now saying, I mean, the, the U.S. just uh, said, I think yesterday, and also they reinstated it today, the Biden administration, that, you know, if, if, they, uh, if the Russians try to, <coughs> if, the, if the Russians block the deal, <coughs> then we're going to do another deal uh, without them. But that that assumes that the Chinese are going to go along with that. And I mean, the whole thing is just completely ignoring the fact that Russia and China and Iran are all working together here. So, I mean, yeah. it's like the, the, the Americans, even now when they're in the negotiations, they're failing to recognize the the nature of the forces that they're that they're negotiating with, that China and Russia and Iran are 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 one team. Exactly. They have different and, and, interests, but they are one team. And the Russian ambassador admitted this um, in a very right. revealing interview with, with Erna News, which is the Iranian state state media. Um, he admitted that they were working together in these negotiations for Iran's benefit. Um, now, I think it is possible to have a deal without Iran, with, sorry, without Russia. Um, Russia is there primarily for um, work with Iran's nuclear program. Um, they they do a lot at Bushir, uh, nuclear facility. They built Bushir. They built Bushir, Bushir is Russian. Um, yeah. And, but but it is possible in theory that the French could remove Iran's nuclear enriched material. Um, there are other countries that have that have that ability, um, but it would be it would take it would take ages to rejigger this deal and redo it without Russia, and that would result in that would require um, Iran to basically suspend its current nuclear enrichment. Um, otherwise, they would trigger what the United States alleges is this political timeline or technical timeline 
which would cause them to leave. And then- yeah, we can see Iran doing that, especially since Russia is the guarantor of the survival of, of Bashar Assad. And, and, and Iran has really advanced great interest in, uh, in allowing Bashar Assad to fall. So, no, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, their interests are so entwined, their strategic interests are so vastly, you know, their shared interests, their shared goals are so vast. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. it's absurd. So I think, you know, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the next week or so. Uh, fortunately, the U.S. has indicated um, they're not willing to entertain Russian demands. Um, but look, as I, I as I told you, how already, long do you think that's going to last for, though? I mean, this deal, it's like, you know, what uh, what's his name said? Um, Obama's uh, Obama's spinmeister Ben Rhodes. I mean, he said this is the most important foreign policy initiative of of this is the most important initiative of Obama's second term when he was talking about the JCPOA. I mean, this is basically the only foreign policy initiative of Biden's term, right? I mean, they're not going to let this go away. They need Russia, and that really calls into question their entire. Ukraine operation, because if Russia is going to make this impossible for them to go forward with the Iran nuclear deal, then, I mean, they're being forced to choose between their Ukraine policy and their Iran policy. Which one do you think that they're going to hold more important, you know, of higher value for them? Look, I think if they, you know, if Russia said, hey, this is this or nothing, and the Iranians said, we're we're Russia here, it's, it's all or nothing. That would put the Biden administration in this incredibly difficult position because the American people don't usually care about foreign policy. They don't usually pay attention, but they are paying attention on Russia, Ukraine right now. They're paying a huge amount of attention to it. And if they saw the U.S. you know, cave to Russia on Iran, they would then suddenly start paying a whole lot of attention to this Iran deal. Um, and already what, we, what I've seen is a huge backlash in Congress and in the public um, against this Russian negotiated deal. Um, I think the Biden administration is being forced into this very uncomfortable corner where everything it is doing right now on Iran is highly politically um, flammable for them. It's not going to result in any, even Democrats in Congress recognize that this deal is far worse. Um, Senator Chris Murphy actually tweeted, quote tweeted my, my piece in tablet and he admitted that um, this deal is not as going to be as good as the old deal. And he blamed Trump for that um, and said, like, look, we're not going to get a, a deal that's better. It's just that's just not what's going to happen. Um, and so I think you're not going to see any even Democrat members of Congress really defend this deal. They might say it is necessary, but they will not say that it's a good deal. They would not claim that. All right. The last question that I'm going to ask you, then, because we do have to wrap it up, but what do you think the chances are that Biden is going to submit this to Congress? And do you think that there's any appetite for uh, for a, uh, uh, an, an, the agreement to be deliberated or approved uh, among Democrats in the Senate? So um, my understanding, and this is a little loose, is that he's not going to submit it the proper way. You might submit it in an improper way as a sort of veneer of, of seeking for congressional. Um, what does that mean? So, so normally, um, the moment that you get a deal, you have five days to submit to Congress, and then you have a thirty-day window where you cannot have any sanctions relief. You cannot, you know, change any sanctions on Iran unilaterally. You have to wait for Congress to act. 
My understanding is that President Biden is going to lift sanctions anyways uh, in this first tranche um, that could happen any day. Um, and then after that, there are a couple other sort of portions of the deal which he might submit those parts to Congress. And so, so wait, that, the first tranche involves unfreezing the that would be ending all that would be uh lifting sanctions on all the supreme leaders office that's just canceling trump's executive order which he's fully yeah. able to do as president so that he that can would do be- that as president but the law says that if he does that pursuant to a nuclear deal with iran that that deal has to be submitted to congress and has 30 days before it can take effect so that is where he would be breaking the law uh is by not he has authority to rescind those sanctions but he must do that pursuant to submitting a deal with Congress. Um, so it's possible that um, he will submit um, portions of the deal su- later uh, to Congress, but damage will have already been done because a large, not all, but a large portion of those funds, 90 billion would be accessible by Iran in the interim before Congress can act. So that's interesting. That, that would actually, since it's a, it, that could clearly be defined as a high crime. Right. I mean, that if if the Republicans take over in January 2023, they could they could impeach Biden for that. They could. I mean, you can impeach the president for about anything that is ultimately a political. As we as we discovered twice uh, with Trump, as as we've discovered, uh, impeachment is a purely political endeavor. Um, You can you can it is the judgment of any member of Congress, whether any action constitutes a high crime or misdemeanor. Um, And so it's up to. The discretion of each member of Congress on that question. Um, in terms of will it get a vote? Probably not. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer appear to be sort of carrying uh, President Biden's water on this. So even if a deal is submitted to Congress, it is not guaranteed a vote. All that is guaranteed is that um, members can review the deal, um, but they but an actual vote um, is the discretion of both Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in the Senate and House, respectively. Um, so it is so frankly, uh, and even if there were there were a vote, um, President Biden would be able to veto um, any resolution of disapproval. So ultimately, there is account there is accountability that Congress can provide, but only with a two thirds majority of both chambers, could Congress actually act to block it. What Congress's primary that's under uh, the Inara. That's under the Inara. That's under Inara. Now Inara stood stood the Constitution on its head. Right. Because, I mean, you're supposed to have a, a two thirds uh, passage. You're supposed to have two thirds majority to pass a, a treaty. And they a pretended treaty. that yes. they did something else. So, I mean, in a way, I guess we, we, we should probably wrap it up. But what you're saying is that Biden, through Mali, is negotiating a surrender uh, to Iran. And, is- the, and the and the Congress under Biden's uh cronies, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, are going to stand the Constitution on its head and pretend that this isn't something that that requires uh, congressional or Senate approval and ratification as a treaty. So great. <laughs> great. Thank you. I think you hit about it. I guess <laughs> what I wanted to say, the, 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 the parallel that I wanted to make was that they're going to sign this deal that that puts the, na- the nuclear nonproliferation treaty in the garbage can. And and Chuck and Nancy are gonna then throw the Constitution in the in the garbage can by not by not subjecting it to to any any formal uh, oh, congressional oversight or approval as a treaty. 
So that's that's my fear. That's my fear as well. That's terrific. All right. Well, on that happy note, I really it was very nice meeting you on uh, on this podcast on this webcast. I thank you for exposing the uh, details of uh, this very distressing deal. Uh, do you think, by the way, just I guess one last question, you think that the Russian uh, machinations may push this back and make it um, delay it I enough to make it irrelevant? That is my hope combined with a very, very large outcry from Congress in the last week, um, largely as a result, uh, if I'm not being too bold as from my reporting. Um, there's been a huge outcry from Congress about uh, the details that were leaked. Um, and so I think there is a real chance that this could collectively tank the deal. I hope that's the case. I fear it's not the case, um, but hope springs eternal. Well, I think it's important. I think that you really do deserve a lot of uh, credit for for having friends in the right places and having friends who turn to you uh, to expose this uh, information because it's certainly uh, critical that uh, that Congress knows this, that the that Israel know this, that um, the Saudis and the UAE know this, and that we can all, at a minimum, uh, be more prepared uh, when this horrible deal is concluded. Um, and I and I think that you know there's the truth is the greatest disinfectant, and I think it's very important. And, and really, you deserve a lot of credit for getting it out. And and so I want to say thank you for for the great work that you're doing. Um, and, uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We'll have to have you back the next time that you break a major story about, the, the inner workings of the, uh, of the Biden, uh, pro Iran factory in the state department and, and in the administration more generally, I appreciate it very much, uh, guys. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much for watching this, uh, newest episode. I think we're going to be talking with, uh, Tony Badran about Syria and Lebanon next week. So stay tuned for that also. And make sure that you get the word out to all of your friends and nodding acquaintances. We passed the 4,000 subscribers on uh, YouTube. And I saw that uh, Rumble is uh, now outpacing YouTube suddenly after in two weeks, uh, two to one. So that's all great. Uh, be sure to uh, subscribe if you haven't yet. And uh and we'll see you again next week. Oh, and happy Purim to everybody. And uh, may we see the new Haman of our times, uh, Khamenei and the Iranian revolution. I mean, the Iranian regime overturned uh, like Haman uh, back in the day. And, uh, and we should rejoice when the Iranian people are free and we are free of the Iranian regime. So that's that. Signing off for this week. Take care. Thank you.